Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week we are talking about women running for office and it's a great conversation and I'm, I think it's necessary because the more women have a voice, the more that more issues are heard, whether it be for their children, for them, or in general, it just opens the pool of opinions and thoughts. And Emily, I got to tell you, um, it is Women's History Month. Here it is, March again. Um, and so I would be remiss if I didn't get on my moral high horse for a second and to say that I am 45 years old. I have been working professionally in politics since I was 22 years old. And uh, so it's been a while. And I will say this. I used to have this incredible attitude that it didn't really matter how you were treated as a woman, that you had to keep your head down and get along with the boys and just suck it up. And sure, you sat in some meeting. You know, I've had to go to, and I've written a column about this, which I will post actually on my Twitter feed as part of um, the segment. But I... uh, there was a time in my life in my 20s when I had a client, um, a political client, who was very powerful. And he insisted on having meetings take place at strip clubs. Um, and so that's where you'd have to meet him. And I would, like every guy, um, would have to go to strip clubs and drink scotch, which he used to like. Um, I hate scotch, as everybody who listens to this show knows. I hate brown alcohol, but you sort of had to do it, right? So we'd have these meetings where we'd talk about politics and then these women would be dancing on poles in front of us. And it was like, okay, this is what I have to do. And I just sucked it up and I did it and, and you know, then, then had my meeting and, and left and it would be like three o'clock in the afternoon. You'd walk out into this bright sunlight after being this dim, dark, disgusting, smoke-filled um, strip club. And this would happen repeatedly. And I just kind of sucked it up and did it. And I thought, okay, this is what you kind of have to do. And and I would do it. And uh, I no longer think that's acceptable. And I would think, I would have thought if you had to tell me at the age of 22 that I would get less cynical as I got older, I would say that's really not how it's supposed to work. But I feel like I have gotten less cynical. I I was really, Julie, that that actually during our conversation surprised me when when you said that and kind of went back on that because... I think that's inspiring as well because I think even even myself seeing where I can kind of not hide my femininity or who I am and embrace it as opposed to just kind of put that in the background in in a work setting has has kind of evolved through even my work career. It's you know yeah, that's true. Um, but I think for me it has to do with the fact that I've now gotten to whether because of hard work or or age. Um, have gotten to a pretty senior level um, in my in my business, which is which is politics, and I have had younger women who are the same age that I was when I had to go to these strip clubs, which I think no longer is acceptable um, behavior. <laughs> but I, I've had younger women who are in their twenties and thirties who really are passionate about their business. I mean, they're really passionate about getting involved in politics and changing the world and changing their state. Um, come to me and tell me these horrible stories and anecdotes about the way um, they were treated by men. Um, and it's you know male campaign managers, and, and typically campaign managers are, are men um, in these kinds of cases, or, or other senior campaign officials. Um, you know, the, the, the way they were discriminated against, the sexual harassment that would take place, the inappropriate comments, the... Um, just the fact that, that 
there would be these trips that these guys would go on that were all guy trips, and of course they can't bring women along because that's not appropriate because that's not how it's been done. Um, and, and these women really are kind of coming to me in tears and saying, this isn't right. Uh, we want to be a member of the team. We want to do the right thing, but we feel like we, just because we're women or sometimes because we're attractive women, um, we get hit on or we get dismissed or you have to sort of prove yourself that you're not just a pretty face. And, and it's something that I think when you're in the moment, or at least when I was in the moment, I, I kind of never absorbed. But it's really hearing stories from younger women when they come to me and ask me for help and what, you know, what can I do other than to say that I believe that if more women were in positions of authority, that wouldn't be the case. And that's why I think I'm so passionate, not I think, I know I'm so passionate about getting women elected and about having women um, in positions of, of influence in government and on campaigns. And again, I, I hope our conversation inspires whether a, someone to run for a campaign, to be a campaign manager, to just get more women involved in, in the conversation. I think if it's just one person that this conversation inspires that we've done a good job. No question. Coming up, Patty Russo of the Women's Campaign School at Yale Law School. I am very, very happy to welcome to our show Patty Russo, the executive director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale. Um, full disclosure, Patty, I was a board member on this at the school for, for a number of years, I think probably close to 10 years, but yeah. you were there at the inception. And to me, the beauty of the school is the fact that it's not partisan, it's not issue-based. Um, we have trained Republicans, we've trained Democrats, we've trained women who've gone on to be senators and congresswomen. Um, and presidential candidates like Kirsten Gillibrand and uh, certainly Gabby Giffords, um, former congresswoman from Arizona, was one of our alums. So uh, it's just the, the amount of good work that the school that you are running has done on both sides of the aisle. I've mentioned Democrats, but certainly there have been Republicans who have gone on to do amazing things as well. has been great. So why don't you talk a little bit about the school and its mission in honor of Women's History Month, which marches. Yes. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be a part of this. Uh, you know, we are celebrating and we'll be seating our 25th class in June this year. Uh, and we started as a result of our, as I affectionately refer to it as our first year of the woman. It was 1992. Uh, as you may recall, there were an inordinate number of women running for Congress and the United States Senate from both sides of the aisle, actually, uh, back in 92. Um, and the majority of the women who were running that year ran and won. So many of us who have been in the trenches politically for a long time felt like, wow, this is great. We finally leveled the playing field, and now other women are going to be inspired to run because all these phenomenal women are now in, in office. And then 1993 happened, and there were virtually uh, very few women uh, uh, running for office. So there was no surge, uh, which is what we had anticipated. And so uh, our founder, Andre Brooks, um, started meeting with uh, Congresswoman Rosa Tuloro, who's still in Congress, then uh, of Connecticut. Yeah, of Connecticut, both Nancy Johnson, moderate Republican, also from Connecticut, uh, and other uh, leaders to talk about the need for a campaign school for women know that there are needs that women have when they run for office and men don't even have to think about. And in order to really level the playing field, um, we felt that we needed um, a different kind of approach to training 
Um, to your point, Julie, we wanted it to be nonpartisan. We wanted it to be issue neutral. We wanted to be focused on techniques and skills uh, that you need to run an effective, successful campaign, either as a candidate or as a campaign manager. Because as you also know, when you look at the field of women who have led uh, national presidential races, for instance, um, we look at Donna Brazil, right, on the Democratic side, and Kellyanne Conway on the Republican side, and then we're in free fall. So quite frankly, we need more women in leadership everywhere. And so that's why we decided on not only the candidate focus, but also the campaign management focus as well. What are some of the specific issues that you point to for women specifically running that we, you know, the public may not know of that you have seen and are kind of teaching candidates consistently that they may have been ignorant of? Well, initially, when we first started 25 years ago, and really up until very recently, women never felt that they were qualified enough to run, right? I think that that's definitely changing quickly, which is the good news. But back 25 years ago, um, you know, we had what I affectionately refer to as the Girl Scout syndrome. And being a Girl Scout myself, I feel fine saying that. We never feel like we're prepared enough. You know, we never feel like we're enough. And so there was this sense of, oh, we have to wait until the right moment. We have to wait until we uh, research things and find, you know, the perfect opportunity rather than what we can do, which is basically creating their own moment, creating their own opportunities. And so um, as a result of that, I think that, you know, women were holding themselves back, feeling I'm not qualified, I'm not ready, this is not my time. Virtually now that has changed and we see women stepping up and saying, okay, I want to speak for myself for success. I kind of want to ask this to both you and Julie about, because I still think it's around now kind of the idea of women being less likely to see a fair political environment if they step into the political arena. How do you kind of combat that or allay those fears? Well, Julie is very pragmatic. She's right in your face and she says, life is not fair. This is not fair. If you're looking for fair, don't run. Okay. Yeah. I, speaking on your behalf, Jules, but that we prepare them for any, anything that, that, that may come their way. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I've been giving, um, Patty, I've been giving that a lot of thought over, um, all the years that I taught at the school. I used to say that. And I think every, every year, and, and I, I have to actually issue a mea culpa to some extent, um, on this subject because, um, over a number of years, whenever I would do this, inevitably one woman in the crowd would raise her hand and relay some horribly misogynistic anecdote about something that had happened to her, and, and inevitably somebody would start crying. And I would, as you said, kind of you know tell people to just buck up and there's no crying in politics and you know get over yourselves and um, live with it. And I was wrong, um, and I've really given that a lot of thought over the past year or two um, as, as to how wrong I was in saying that because I've worked in um, democratic progressive politics throughout my career almost 25 years. Um, and I've had Republican friends who, who certainly say the same, so this is not a partisan observation, but I will say um, it is much, much harder for women in politics. Um, and I speak from experience. I am um, one of a number of women. My first statewide campaign that I did was a gubernatorial was in 1997 in New Jersey. and. Um, 
I was one of very many women on that campaign, very low level. Um, we all were starting out at the same time. Of the people who are still involved in the business today from that campaign, um, people who've gone on to do national work or people who've gone on to do incredible statewide work, um, I think I'm one of the few women. Um, most uh, of them are men. I know that you are. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I really gave some thought over the past year or two as to why that is. And, uh, you know, I don't think any longer that women should just buck up and keep their mouths shut to go along and get along, as I used to say. Um, I do think there is a systematic um, discrimination is not, is not the right word because it's not a legal concept, but there is a systematic, um, some, some, something in the system is geared to make women not succeed. Um, they are not taken as seriously. Their concerns are not taken, taken as seriously. I think to some extent, even the throwaway lines that are used in meetings are meant to demean a lot of women. And again, this is not partisan. I'm, you know, I'm a good liberal Democrat. I see this in Democratic campaigns, and, and my Republican friends say the same on their on their side of the aisle. So I actually think I owe an apology to um, the women who I would say that to that they should. There's no crying in politics. In fact, I think we should speak up about it much more often. I wrote a column about it um, for Gannett um, for the USA Today Network about a year and a half ago um, about how all these politicians who profess to be pro-women and profess to be leaders, um, and especially in the progressive movement, um, need to take a look inside their own campaigns about the way women are treated in those campaigns. Um, because I don't think they do. And I'm specifically talking about the men running, because it is mostly men who are running. And so but that's... I think... Go ahead. I'm sorry, Jill. No, no, go uh, ahead. Jules, but Jules, in your defense, in your defense, the, the, the message that I think was always resonated with our students and is so important for, for them to understand is that it is not a fair uh, playing field. Politics is not a fair playing field. And for them to come in and assume that it is and expect that they're gonna be treated you know, appropriately is a fallacy. And so again, what we have always said at our school is that you know we deal in the reality whatever the current reality is. And to your point, things are definitely evolving and shifting. Um, but uh, you know what we like to say is that we prepare our students for whatever might come their way uh, and so that they're prepared. And uh, for instance, we have a whole new segment that we're adding this year on candidate safety and security. We've got received many calls from our grads who were running last cycle, who were uh, accosted door to door uh, in a variety of different communi communities, rural, suburban, uh, urban, uh, felt that they were being um, stalked after campaign events and did not feel safe. And so that's something that we are adding to our five-day intensive this year in June at Yale Law School because it's a, it's a, a very real issue for women. But here's my question, um, and again, I think it's informed by the discussion we just had, but here's my question. Yes, the world is as, as it is, and life is not fair, and yes, women have a harder barrier and a higher mountain to climb, both as candidates and as campaign operatives. My question for you, and I guess for Emily as well, and I think for every woman out there listening and, and, and men who are allies, um, is to ask the following, is, is that good enough or is the harder thing to do and the much more complicated thing to do but the right thing to do to actually speak up and try to change that and not just to say, well, this is how the world is, it's always been this way. You know, I used to think that that's what you just had to do, to keep your head down, 
go along to get along. And listen, I, I certainly benefited in my career extensively for keeping my head down, from keeping my head down and going along and getting along. And, and let me tell you, and anybody who's listening, it's much easier to do that um, because then you'll be accepted as part of the boys' club, and and, and that's great. And you'll, your career will prosper. And I'm exhibit A of that. Um, speaking up is a lot harder, and it's much, much, much more risky to your career. And a lot of times you speak up about things that you think are wrong and people will say that's great and applaud you and pat you on the back and they're in your career stymied regardless um, because you have spoken up. But, you know, especially on campaigns, and I'm specifically talking about the political environment now, is it good enough um, in 2019 um, after having seen what we've seen um, come to the forefront so much, both on television and cable news and the attitudes towards women, um, on campaigns and from politicians and their attitudes towards women and in the corporate workplace too. Um, is it enough to just say, well, you know, that's the way the world is, or do we need to make an no, affirmative no, decision? And I, no, and I don't think we're saying that anymore. I think it's just like, just know what you're getting yourself into. Just know and, and use your voice, you know, speak up, uh, feel, learn to feel comfortable being the contrarian voice. I mean, I mean, I think we're seeing that in national politics today between, you know, the, the younger, the AOC versus Pelosi. We're seeing the kind of talk out now, say what you want, put your position out there. Don't kind of wait in line versus the we've waited our turn. We're chipping away at it little by little. Whereas you're seeing a lot of the younger uh, representatives kind of here's a bill. We want it passed pretty much like this. And Patty, are you seeing that with people wanting to, women wanting to run as well? It used to be that you had to run for school board, to run for council, and then you ran for council, you ran for the state legislature, and then you run for Congress, and then, you know, you well, run for Senate. And now you have, as, as Emily pointed out, you have people like Alex, yeah. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She didn't wait in line. Yeah. She, she challenged right. and she won. Right. Yeah. We're seeing, we are seeing more and more of that, definitely over the past two years. We've seen more and more of that. Uh, the majority of the women who we've seen who have, who are, much younger. I mean, when we started 25 years ago, the median age of women attended, attending our school were mid 40s. You know, that was the median age. Um, and now it's like late, late 20s, early 30s. So it's definitely shifting. Tell me about, tell me about what the school is doing to attract more Republican women, because I know that um, there's been a, a huge emphasis nationally on the fact that this freshman class has been very, um, diverse in terms of, of African-American women. Certainly, we've heard a lot about Muslim women um, coming yeah. in for the first time, um, Latino yeah. women. But uh, that's on the Democratic side, and, and Republicans yeah. don't seem to have. So what is the school doing to try to attract Republicans and try to make this truly bipartisan or nonpartisan? So, so we, um, uh, we created a Republican Women's Outreach Committee to, to talk about that. Here are the things that we have done uh, to to uh, reach out to Republican women with varying degrees of success. As you recall, Julie, when um, uh, Sharon Day was co-chair of the RNC, we had huge traction as a result of Sharon Day coming to our school to speak every year. Yeah. So just having one leader like that um, really set the tone and helped us tremendously. That, that's great, and I'll say this, um, I don't know if she still comes. She's probably a little busy now, but I, we used to have Marsha Blackburn yes. um, of Tennessee, uh, who's the senator yes. from Tennessee now, come speak at the school, yeah. um, along yeah. with people like Rosa DeLauro. So 
I don't think you see, you know, and that's, that's something else. I, I wonder if men can, can do this the way women can. Um, I always found that you would have an all day, all week, really a five day intensive um, program with the most conservative and the most liberal yeah. women sitting side by side with each other. Uh -huh. And, and nobody got into a fist fight and they'd have, right. and they'd have to actually, they'd have to work together on, on projects yes. and simulations yes. and everybody got along. I mean, you know, they, yeah. there, there are some people that wouldn't get along because of personalities, but certainly nobody started fighting with each other because of politics or because they disagreed vehemently. I mean, there are still people I'm friends with on Facebook from that school who are some of whom are, loathe my politics tremendously, but, but still That's we all you. get along. Exactly. Um, another aspect is a lot of we're seeing groups are recruiting women to run for different positions uh, and I, I see that more women will run if they're asked by somebody so what what's a way where women you know could maybe position themselves better to be recruited well I think our our alums do a phenomenal job of that uh, you know after the five-day intensive Julie will tell you, we are tight, we are close, and we don't want to lose our, our students after having this phenomenal experience, many say life-transforming experience. We want to stay connected to them. We want to stay close to them. So we tell them on Friday of school that we are a phone call away, we're an email away. Uh, we have a very active, closed alumni Facebook page. When I travel, I usually travel somewhere a day in advance and I, I send out a message and say okay I'm coming to town who wants to have breakfast with me if you have good news I'd love to see you but if you're floundering you need to see me because that's when we lose women you know we lose women when they're having a rough day and they think wow this is only happening to me and we basically say uh, get over yourself it's happening to it happens to everyone well, Mike, you know, what, what I think is interesting to Emily's point, too, and this one I could speak to just from having worked with a lot of politicians, both men and women, the men look in the mirror when they wake up and they see the president of the United States looking back at them. I don't care who they are. They just do. They're, they're, not, they're, not ask, they're not asking anybody. They're not looking to yeah. be recruited. They yeah. march in and they say, I'm running yeah. for whatever I'm running for. And in their mind, they're running for the White House, even if they're running for council or, or, or you know, mayor. Um, women sit around... I hope less often now, but in my experience for the last couple of decades, women have sat around and have kind of silently said, pick me, pick me. Right. Um, and I think that's wrong. Um, and I, I can come up with ex example after example of where that's wrong. I'll, I'll use one example, Mikey Sherrill, who just got elected um, to Congress, um, beat, well, not didn't beat, but essentially forced the resignation of a congressman named Rodney Freelingheisen, who had been the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, so probably the most, one of the most powerful people in Washington. And she's a former Navy fighter pilot. She's a former um, assistant United States attorney. She's a mom, she's got four kids. And this woman was not begging somebody to pick her. And in fact, she wasn't that politically active in the sense that she wasn't somebody who had been on council before and in the state legislature. I think she woke up one day and just said, why not me? Mm -hmm. And she ran. To your point, Julie, we're definitely seeing more of that. Uh, we're seeing, wow, why, what have I got to lose? Why don't I take a shot at this? So we're seeing more and more of that rather than women waiting their turn, waiting for the perfect moment. 
uh, talking themselves out of it, which, you know, you also used to happen a lot. Um, and, uh, and then just getting out there and feeling comfortable taking smart, calculated risks. Uh, both for you and Julie have some questions of, I feel like that are only asked to female candidates and kind of how you would each answer them. Uh, first, how are you going to juggle family responsibilities while you're campaigning? <laughs> what, what was the last time you asked a guy that question? I, I think women never, have, never, 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 um, never. Right. No, but I, I feel like women candidates get this. So how do you kind of, you know, you have a candidate with kids at home. How do you tell them to answer this question that they will well, definitely be asked? We tell them to find the answer that they feel most comfortable uh, resp- responding appropriately. You know, that's that's kind of Deb's, one of Deb Sofield's, our speech coach. That's kind of one of her sweet spots because she says if you can use humor, you know, everybody's waiting to be offended. If you can use humor um, to respond to a question like that, uh, that that will give you, you know, that'll go further. You know the difference between Deb's... That, that, that question Well... I, I'm just not going to, you know what... <laughs> I mean, one one of our our grads just said, you know what? Let me talk to my. Gosh, that's a great that's a great question for my husband. What you know? Here's his phone number. Ask him about that. Or yeah. you know, there's a great story about when Pat Schroeder was running for um, Congress. Pat Schroeder of Colorado, former congressman, yeah, from Colorado. former presidential candidate, also. Yes, incredibly supportive husband, marginally supportive children. I believe they were teenagers at the time, and she tells this great story about. Have to, you just have to just kind of find your rhythm, you know, figure out what works for you and what may not necessarily work for everyone. But she did find this, finally find this rhythm. And it's the first day of her being in Congress and the phone rings and it's her son calling her from Denver. Hi, mom. And she goes, here I am thinking he's calling me to ask me how my first day in Congress was. And he says, mom, what's for dinner? What's for dinner? I don't know what's for dinner. Where's your father? Oh, he's in the he's in the living room reading the newspaper. Well, I suggest you go in and ask your father what's for dinner because I'm not going to be home tonight. So it just is like, you know, there are just kind of, you know, roles that we all play in, in our lives. And it's just a matter of figuring out what, uh, what you, how you feel comfortable responding to it. You know why I'd make a horrible candidate and why Deb Sofield, you mentioned Deb Sofield, Deb Sofield, I think used to be an elected official. Um, she's a water commissioner. She's a water commissioner, but yes, but, but she, she, she's, she's from South Carolina, which means she's obviously a lot nicer than, than, than Julie, Julie from New York city. But, um, if somebody, and, and I would never run for anything because if somebody asked me that question and I'm a single mom, as you know, Patty, um, yeah. so I really don't have much time on my hands. I would yeah. say, why don't you let me worry about that? That's really not anybody's concern but mine. Exactly. Which is exactly. not which is not um, the politic way to answer that question, which right. is why, of course, I, I would not get elected right. dog catcher. But so, that, yeah, that question would just, irritate me to no end. Right, right, right. So what else? Throw something else at us, um, So what about uh, issues of temperament? Uh, when you're asked a question that's in- incredibly offensive, maybe much like the juggling your family, how do you kind of advise the candidate to not want to jump off stage 
i.e. mean girls when they jump off a fountain and like strangle somebody. <laughs> How do you advise your candidate to kind of hold it in? Because I feel like with women, it's such an interesting thing where you want to be honest, but it's also, you have to almost play this part where if you really do are like, no, that's, that's a dumb question. You'll be automatically the temperament thing will come up. So how do you kind of reconcile that? Well, I don't, I don't actually, um, you know, I've worked on this my entire adult life, um, on my temper, seriously. Um, because sadly, um, you sort of have to, right? And I very, 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 very rarely lose my temper. Um, and that takes a lot of work actually. So I think you just have to dig your nails into your hands, suck it up and, um, just, I also, you know, it. I also think you, you know, you ask, you answer a part of the question that you want to answer and you ignore the rest or you completely um, say something that has nothing to do with the question. Okay. That has worked for me, actually. And then the reporter gets the, you know, gets it most of the time. Yeah. The person's you know, Roger Ailes, um, Roger Ailes, formerly of... Um, the president of Fox News, the founder of Fox News, um, had a very good piece of advice for me when I was when I was first starting out, um, and he said that it really did not not that it didn't matter what I said, but I could say what I wanted to say as long as my body language uh, was was okay. So if you have a smile on your face and you're kind of taking yourself not too seriously, and that actually has been served me that served me well certainly all my years on TV, but it also kind of serves me well in real life. I think it's a lot of it has to do with how you answer the question in terms of the temperament that you present um, when you answer the question, and and you can say what you want to say and speak your mind. Um, again, Southerners, you know, have a great sort of bless your heart preamble that they start with, and then they go and then they go on to sh you know stick the shiv in your back. But but they're really good at it. They're and, really good at it. Yeah. They're so, they're so polite. About yeah, it. I mean they they they're when you know they can tell you to go to hell and worse you know while 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 being really polite and sweet about it. Um, exactly. And exactly. so the British are the same, and I think that's actually a, a good way to potentially do it. Um, but. Again, this is why I don't run for office. I probably would not be able to, would not would not be able to do it as nicely as a Southern lady. Uh, I did want to add that we are uh, smack dab in the middle of our um, application period for our June seventeenth week at the at the Women's Campaign School. So, if your listeners wanted to go online um, to our website wcsel.org. Uh, our online application is right there waiting for them. Um, you know, we're, we are in the midst of, of March, which is um, the month we dedicate to women. I, I find it interesting that women who give birth to you and pretty much carry your family for you get 11 twelfths, one twelfth of the year <laughs> dedicated to them, plus, <laughs> one, plus, plus one day in May if you're a mom. Uh, <laughs> Um, but Patty, what do you think in the large scheme of things, uh, you came of age politically, um, as did I, at a time when women were not as involved at the time when, um, Geraldine Ferraro as the vice presidential candidate was just yeah. tremendously big news. Um, and certainly you, you alluded to 1992 with Anita Hill. I, I've said before, you know, I keep saying it, I, I was uh, a freshman in college being glued to the TV watching those hearings and remembering that year how many women got elected 
and thinking this is great and the year of the woman and this is going to be fantastic. And then sadly, I, I believe we have fewer women in Congress now until this past cycle, excuse me, right. last year we had fewer women um, in Congress than we did after that year. So do you think this ebbs and flows or do you think we saw something systemic happen um, that changed the paradigm and essentially that, that women now are on a trajectory that will not be able to slope down, that wasn't, that's not gonna slope down the way it did after the yeah. Nita hearings. <clears throat> we are, uh, women are surging. It's very exciting to see, to be a part of every day. So I feel like it's, you know, women's, women's day every day in my life uh, because the surge continues. I mean, we had to create an entirely new additional level of training to meet the clarion call of all the women that we're, we're hearing from who want to be civically engaged, who want to be a leader in some capacity. So it's not just about running for office, it's working on a campaign, it's being a leader on an issue that you feel passionately about. So what we're trying to share uh, with women now is there are so many different exciting paths that you can choose depending upon what, you know, what makes your heart sing. What, what gets you out, up and out in the morning? What makes, inspires you and excites you? And so that's what we're, what's up we're seeing now. That's what we're experiencing now. This, you know, female tsunami of women saying, I want to do something, help me figure out what it is I, I want to do. I think it's inspiring because it's also, even if women may not want to run for something, the fact that more women's voices are promoted just to be louder and heard is so important because when the issue is out there and lawmakers keep hearing their constituents say something and now that these voices are getting louder, whether it be childcare or education or environment, now I think these issues will be addressed or at least will be talked about more instead of pushed back. Absolutely, absolutely. We're definitely saying that. And we're, we're seeing more and more men contacting us, wanting, wanting to be supportive of women leaders, which has never happened before. You know, they'll call me and they'll say, hi, you know, I'm, I'm a man, you know, I'm so-and-so and I'm a man. I want to I wanna be supportive of women. I'm so excited to see what's happening in our country and I want to be a part of it. How can I help women? And that's phenomenal. That's an entirely new sea change that we've never experienced before in mass numbers. Patty Russo, um, <laughs> Executive Director of the Women's Campaign School at Yale, thank you so much for discussing a topic so that thank is so you, important. Emily. It you. was so much fun. Everybody, I can vouch for this. <laughs> apply, apply, apply to the school. Oh, if, um, if I promise you, it is entirely nonpartisan. I know you're, this is coming from a, from a good liberal Democrat, but I promise you there are so many good Republicans um, who got so much out of the school, I can tell you firsthand, who graduated, who went on to do amazing things. Yeah. Um, I, I, I can name them, but I won't embarrass them that way, except to say that some of them worked for John McCain's presidential campaign and then went on to work in Silicon Valley. Um, and I think would say that they got a tremendous amount out of the school. So, Patty, thank you. And thank you, most importantly, for everything you're doing to advance the cause of women in politics. There are not enough women and men who do what you do. So thank you on behalf of women in politics everywhere. Thank, thank you. you. All thank right. you so much. Thanks for joining us. Take care. My pleasure.
I would say this was a crazy week in politics, but it's, uh, or not just politics in the world, what with Aunt Becky getting arrested, um, but it's a crazy week every week, so um, I will say on that note, uh, of all the cast members of Full House, I really did not think that John Stamos would be the most blameless one, but it turns out he is. But anyway, what's making you salty this week? Well, now that you say that, it is the college admissions uh, scandal uh, with the ultra-rich being accused by the Justice Department of college admissions bribery. I think um, this this just really shows the serious inequities in, in our education system that e- how the system is already, despite these people cheating, which is on just terrible, but it's also showing, though, how unequal this system is where, where wealthy people already have these connections or can pay tutors more for taking the same tests. A kid in a wealthy family may be just as smart as a kid in inner city Detroit, but if the, the, this kid's parents can spend thousands of dollars for SAT tutors, there's already that advantage. And the, the college system is, I think, just already built upon this inequitable system that needs to be changed because if the whole idea of America is you can move and be better in society with your job through education and then education is only available to certain people, it's exposing a lot of problems. It is, but you know, I, I, I'm really struggling with the story uh, because I don't know how to fix it. I'll, I'll look, I'll use myself as an example. Uh, Emily, you know, my son, uh, he's in first grade. He goes to a pretty fancy private school in New York. And I will tell you that I have no idea whether he's going to get into Brown University where you went or a similarly incredible school. But I think his chances are much better just by virtue of, of going to uh, a pretty good school, and which is a feeder school into great colleges, and uh, having a family that has the wherewithal to get him that extra tutoring for the SATs. Um, and, and, and the fact that he can play, not that he will, um, because they don't have a water polo team, but I mean, I, I look at this USC <laughs> scandal oh that, that, oh, you know, they're on the water polo team, so they can get into the water polo team. Well, guess what? Water polo doesn't exist in the inner city. Um, water polo exists in schools that have uh, pools and have the money to have a pool and have the money to have a water polo team. So uh, I don't know what the answer is because we are not born with equal opportunity no matter how much we want to be. Um, I certainly wasn't. I uh, came here, um, as you know, from the Soviet Union. We had, I think, $90 between the three of us when we came here. lived in the inner city in the Bronx. Um, But I had parents who were incredibly committed to making sure that I got a good education. So I got, they insisted um, that I, they kind of talked their way into getting me to private school uh, for free. I mean, I had a, almost a full scholarship to private schools for most of my life. And that's because I had parents who were really committed to that despite being dirt poor. If I didn't have those parents, I would just be a dirt poor kid from the inner city who would be going to the local public school. And I can promise you that that local public school um, would not have afforded me the opportunities um, educationally, subsequently. So I don't know what the answer is. I, I you know, I, I look at this story, and I think about the fact that these parents were cutting corners and doing these things um, illegally, and they will obviously be penalized in some capacity. Um, probably not in a way that somebody who's a minority would be. But you know, I don't know whether they're facing jail time, but they're certainly going to have to plead to something. I wonder, this is kind of what we do for our kids. 
So do you, right. do, do you hate the player or do you hate the game? That's I think you kind of hate the game. I, huh? Right. Because I, I know I see on the one hand too, the parents are just seeing it as a way, all right, I'm seeing other parents do things to get their kids in. I'm just going to do this. And you want the best for your kid. But again, it's. I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I don't know because again, it's a whole salty pool. I don't even, it's, it's very salty. I'm, I don't know what I'm salty about. I feel empathy for the parents because they're being driven crazy by the fact that they have to get their kids into a good school. It is an imperative mm-hmm. to get your kids into a good school. I'm not sure why it's an imperative other than you're just groomed to believe that you have to go to an incredible school. Um, so they're doing whatever they can for their own children. Um, I, I feel salty about the fact that this is how the system is set up. Um, and I feel salty about the fact that all of this would be legal if they had taken their half a million dollars and, and maybe given it in a donation to a school. Apparently, although I read that the entry fee to even be considered at a good Ivy League school in a special way is maybe $10 million, so I don't think half a million would do it enough. But look, I mean, a um, ProPublica editor wrote a great book about 10 years ago about how the scam of getting connected people into college. And you know, I, I'll use Jerry Kushner as an example. His, his um, teachers at his uh, school in New Jersey, at his high school, said that he certainly didn't have the grades or the scores to get into Harvard. But lo and behold, his father, Charlie Kushner, donated $2.5 million to Harvard right before the admissions process. And, and Jared ended up going to Harvard um, over kids who the school had deemed to be much more qualified. So how, how, did, how did the Trump children all get into University of Pennsylvania. How did Donald Trump get in there? Maybe they were brilliant. Maybe they had incredible scores. Maybe they had incredible grades. Or maybe not. I don't know the answer to that. Um, and so I think that's something to consider about the fact that it's the game. The system is just completely messed up. But we all participate in it. And by the way, right, you have I, to. I, I'm as crazy as the next person. I want my kid, you know, if, if my kid could get into Harvard or Yale or Brad, where you went, or, or to any other incredible school, of course I would do whatever it took to get him in there. I don't know why. It's just what you... Sort of, it's right. You just sort of, I mean, you tell me. You went to an incredible college, um, an incredibly competitive college to get into. I tried to get into Brown, as you and I always joke about. I, I did not succeed. Um, so do you feel that you got a better education than if you had gone to University of Florida? I think it's all perception, because I know you see people at... Brown working not hard and then someone working at University of Florida very hard and coming out with a great education. I think it's what the individual puts into it, but I think it's what people on the outside perceive. People on the outside perceive, oh, they have gone here, so they must be smart. I think it's that perception, and I think it's also a lot of where you go, and I think especially the wealthier communities is tied to self-worth. Again, I don't know the answer other than I'm not salty by, by your salty segment as much as I am confused right? <laughs> by my emotion toward it. I don't know if there's pepper. I don't know I, salt. I don't know salt, like, pepper, even... just, just, just mass confusion. Anyway, I'm confused. The whole story makes me confused and ambivalent and um, not salty so much as... Well, so much as mayonnaise Well, like, well what? There's a block happening to it. <laughs> we have reached a new level of unsalty politics, mayonnaise Mayonnaise It makes me feel <laughs> mayonnaise not salty. Well, I'll tell you what it is making me salty. My dudes on Twitter. Oh, God. Please stop explaining anti Semitism to me. I beg of you. Oh, my God. You had some responses, I Julie. I beg that were... of you. All right, listen. I don't need lectures about anti-Semitism. I just don't. I lived it. 
I left the Soviet Union because of it. My grandmother, at the age of 78, moved to Israel and died there after 25 or 28 years of living there and is buried there because of it. My parents left their lives and their jobs and the only family they had because of it. I came here penniless at the age of seven because of it. So when you sit there and you lecture me about the fact that the Democratic Party is not good for the Jews and it's bad for Israel, don't come at me unless you want to get slapped down. And by the way, for those of you who think Israel is a great place because that's where the second coming is going to happen, guess what? That's not what the Jews support Israel for. And you could be against Bibi Netanyahu and believe that he is doing exactly the opposite of what Jews stand for and have stood for for millennia and still be pro-Israel and not an anti-Semite. Please cut it out unless you really want me to get salty on you and bring the clap back back, which I'm seriously considering doing because you're all annoying the crap out of me on this subject. So on that note, to recap, let me tell you why Jews tend to be Democrats, and they do, because the crap they're seeing coming out of Donald Trump's mouth when it comes to other minorities like Latinos and African Americans and calling African American countries shitholes. This is the first time I think I've ever cursed in my life on a radio show or a podcast or a TV show or any other way or on social media, but I will say it because the president said it. That's what Jews for millennia have experienced. You want to know why Jewish people as a rule recoil from Donald Trump? Because all the stuff that he's leveling at other minorities right now is something that Jews have had to contend with for 2,000 years. So when they see that, it brings back all sorts of dark memories for us. And that's why the more you engage in that kind of behavior towards other minorities, the more you will never get the Jewish community as a whole to support you. And the only people who vote Democratic more than the Jewish community are Protestant African Americans. So understand why, because both Jews and African Americans believe that when they see this kind of crap directed at other minorities, it makes them a little squeamish based on their own history about the man that's directing that kind of opprobrium. Because first they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up, then they came for the Protestants, I didn't speak up, then they came for the Catholics, I didn't speak up, and then they finally came for me and there was nobody left to speak up for me. I'm completely paraphrasing this phrase from World War II, but that's exactly what Jews have felt all their lives and for generations. So please, on that note, now I'll explain to you why you need to cut the crap with the anti-Semitism stuff in the Democratic Party. You do it one more time on Twitter, I promise you I will bring the clap back back. And maybe people want that, but I will shame you and I will name you. Oh. All right. That's what's making me salty. Now I've got all the salt out. I feel good again. I'm very sunny. I just have to say that the fire, let me just paint a little picture for our listeners. The fire that was in your eyes for this, I just have to say when I was in the control room for the clap back, when there would be a subject you felt very passionate about, I would just sit back and smile and, been, and was like, this is great. I'm so happy because this, <laughs> this, it's just, I love it. And yes. Um, so this was a great episode and don't come at Julie. Yeah, I mean, you could come at me. I mean, but, but you or can, do. You can come at me, but I will have to take a day off of work. And I really don't want to do that, to sit there and clap back at you on Twitter. And, you know, once in a while, I like doing that. But 
Uh, as we talked about, as you heard us talk about with Patty Russo, I'm kind of busy. Like, I'm right. super, got a lot of stuff going on. Um, so, so just don't. Just don't. Right. Or I'll get the popcorn and just watch. Yeah. Or, or you know. <laughs> All right. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. All right.